Good morning, church family. Pained, lost, fearful, brokenhearted, sad, angry, frustrated, unheard, unseen, unloved, concerned, oppressed, afraid, hopeless, upset, enraged, silenced, uncertain, sick, tired, exhausted, weary, wounded, sorrowful, vulnerable, mad, disappointed, failing, opposed, hated, alone. These are just a few of the things that we have felt the last two weeks. You know, honestly, I'm not totally sure what to say today. I hate to break the illusion, but as I speak, it's Thursday, and I have no idea what the world will be like by the time that you're watching this. I have prepared three messages for today. All of them seemed good, and none of them seemed right. I believe we could look back on this period of history as one of the most important moments in the history of the American church because for the last three months, God has hit the pause button on so many of the things that a church like ours takes pride in. And while churches all across our country have been paused, the reality of division and injustice according to race in America has come from the back of our minds to the forefront. And I believe that God is giving us an opportunity, an opportunity to take notice, an opportunity to not repeat the past, an opportunity to do better. You know, it's a heated debate. It has been for millennia what the role of the church of Jesus Christ should be when it comes to social change. There are those who think the church should lead the way, and there are those who think that pastors like me should just teach the gospel. But I don't think that that question is even necessary. Because what I believe, if we began to, with a whole heart and a full throat, begin to take seriously Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, when he told his disciples, go and make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then this part, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I think if we take seriously the everything, not only will change happen, even more than that, Jesus-centered, gospel-saturated transformation of communities and nations will happen through the lives of ordinary people like us. Our problem is that we only obey some of what Jesus has commanded us. You know, it's challenging to talk about Racism, each of us brings our own personal history. Each of us brings our family history into the conversation. We bring our nation's history. We bring our strengths. We bring our weaknesses. We bring our education, and we bring our ignorance. Thankfully, God is not afraid to talk about such things, and we find in the Scripture over and over again God giving explicit instructions and how the different ethnicities that He has created for His own glory should love one another and serve one another. And we're given rich examples in the scripture, both good and bad, of things to do and things not to do. So the question isn't so much about what the role of the church will play in America or in Houston. The question is, is will we begin to take more seriously the commands of the living God? 
Would you open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13, and we are going to concentrate on just the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. You know, I was practically born into the church. You may have been as well. And and what I mean when I say that, and what you mean when you hear other people say that, and what you know, is that you've gone to church for as long as you can remember. I was born into the church. And that's right. Most of us have gone to church for as long as we can remember, and ideally our children will have gone to church for as long as they remember, but there's something invisible there that I think is in all of us. The sense that I belong here more than someone else. But somehow, because I've been around the longest, that I have a place here that I have earned just by being me that other people haven't. It's not conscious, it's an invisible feeling, but it is very, very real. In times like the the days that we're living, good theology really, really matters. It's it's so easy for us to assume that church history starts in Acts chapter 9 when the Apostle Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, and then everything that happens after that is church history. But the truth is, church history started way back in Genesis chapter 12, at least there, when God picked a regular, not-so-special person named Abram and said, Abram, if you will follow me, I'll make you the father of a great nation. I'll make your wife, Sarah, the mother of a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to demonstrate to the whole world exactly who I am. Through this nation, I'm going to talk and show about my goodness and my glory and my greatness and my plan for every person that will ever live. And that's what we know as Israel. And we read about Israel through the Hebrew Scriptures, our first half of the Bible, and out of Israel came the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, not just someone born into the lineage of Abraham, but the eternal, ever-present, ever-living Son of God come to earth incarnate, And through the Messiah, Jesus, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return, all those who believe in him can come into the people of God. Even those of us who were not born in the lineage of Abraham can consider ourselves sons and daughters of God. It's a great gift that Jesus has given us by welcoming us into the family of God. In Romans chapter 11, the same idea is spoken about, but the image is not of a family, it's of a tree, and that tree is Israel. God planted that tree with Abraham, and it grew into the people of God, and it says that those of us who were not born in the family of Israel, we've been grafted in like a branch from somewhere else, placed into the tree. So what a tragedy racism is in the church, when we who have been invited in, we who have been adopted into the family of God, would say to someone else, I belong here more than you. Both with the things that we say, but the looks that we give, or the feeling that we give off. What a tragedy that is when we forget that it is only by God's grace that any of us belong. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God by adoption. And so unless you are a Jesus follower of Jewish heritage, We should stop right now to thank God that though once we were far off, 
we've been brought in to the people of God. The New Testament talks about prejudice using different words. It uses words like partiality or favoritism. And we understand what partiality is. I am partial to starburst minis over regular starbursts. It doesn't mean that I don't like regular starbursts. I, I definitely do. I'm just partial to starburst minis. Don't go and try them. That's not a recommendation. Most people I know hate them, but I'm partial to them. I'm partial to basketball over baseball. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't enjoy a good Astros game every now and again. I love hearing you know trash cans be beat on as well. Uh, no, that, was a, that was a low blow. I apologize for that. Uh, uh, but uh, I, it's not that I don't like baseball or football or bowling. I'm just partial to basketball. In James chapter 2, James talks about that partiality. And in the church that James is addressing, the partiality is based on economics. The Christians there are partial to those who have a lot of money. In fact, it says there that uh, the regular people or the poor people, when they're sitting someplace and a rich person comes in, the, the church leaders uh, would actually say to the poor person, no, you, you can't sit you can't say here, this is a seat of honor for the wealthy person. And James says, no, you know, you can't do that. You can't show that kind of partiality. And we know that just a little more than 100 years ago in England, this was still a common practice. In order to raise money for tithes and offerings, families with a lot of wealth would buy a pew, and that would support the ministry of the church. But what ended up happening was it showed this kind of partiality. Those who had a lot of money would buy the good seats in the house. The famous Christian and uh, Christian leader George Mueller, when he became a pastor, he saw that practice as the evil that it was because of James 2. A church shouldn't show this kind of partiality. And you, you see this partiality and favoritism all over the world in different contexts outside of the church. For 30 years in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Northern Ireland, uh, people were partial to the Protestants over the Catholics. In India, we see the caste system. And in Galatians chapter 2, we see partiality based on race. The Apostle Peter, one of the original followers of Jesus, is now a leader in the, the church of Jerusalem, the mother church of, of, of Christianity. And he travels north to Antioch to visit Gentile Christians. And the Apostle Paul is there as well. Now, there is a tremendous amount of cultural difference between the Gentiles of the Roman Empire in the first century and the Jewish people of Israel in the first century. And so you can imagine what a collision that was, that both groups are now believing in Jesus of Nazareth as the eternal Son of God, Messiah and Savior of the world. And so Peter brings his Jewishness to the Gentile church of Antioch. But because they're in Christ, some of the rules that Peter would have normally obeyed the hand washing. We eat this, we don't eat this, we eat with Jewish people only. Some of those rules he knows have been set aside because of their faith in Christ. And so when he's with the Gentile Christians, he, he, he just acts as a Christian. But the Jerusalem church also sent some other believers to Antioch. And they caught Peter acting like a Gentile Christian. And you know what Peter did? He stopped eating with those Gentiles. He started, stopped being quite as free as he was, and he, he took on the old yoke of that Judaism because of the pressure from those Jewish Christians. And in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul calls him out on that partiality. Why would you favor the Jewish Christians? Why would you continue to act like that and do harm to these new Gentile Christians? There are some who will deny that this kind of partiality or prejudice is in the church now. 
Or if we would admit that it was there, almost none of us would admit that it comes from us. It's like a lightning strike. You know that it happens. You've heard stories, but you don't personally know anybody who's experienced that. And, and of course, you would never expect that you would be one to have it happen to. But don't you think if Peter, an original follower of Jesus, Peter, whom Christ himself said, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Don't you think if Peter could fall into the trap of racial partiality, a regular person like me, regular person like you might also fall into that trap? Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in a house. At this point in his ministry, the newness of his teaching style and even some of his Miracles have worn off a little bit, and his family is becoming a little embarrassed of him. And so his brothers and his mother come to the house and knock on the door. They send in a messenger to come and pull Jesus out to interrupt his teaching. The messenger comes in and says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They'd like to have a word with you. And Jesus says to the crowd there in Matthew chapter 12, Who do you think are my mother and brothers? It may not be the people standing outside. It's you, my people, the people listening to me, the the people who are committed to do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, this was revolutionary. There, There were very few things more important in first century Judaism than your family. And what Jesus is saying is even more than family identity is the identity of being in the family of God. Being able to call God our Father, proved by doing His will. Now, that doesn't mean that your family is not important or your culture isn't important. Absolutely, it is. In fact, we see this in, in the Scripture. Jesus continued to be Jewish. The Jewish Christians continue to be Jewish. The Gentile Christians continued to be Gentile. And, uh, in, in Revelation, we see a picture of the throne room of God. And there, we see every tribe represented from all over the earth. So it was obvious, based on their skin color, based on their language, that people who are so different have come together to worship the Lamb of God, the one who sits on the throne. But what God does in the scripture is not to minimize our individual cultures, but to elevate our identity as children of God, brothers and sisters in God's family. Remembering theologically that I don't belong here any more than anyone else. Once that happens, we'll truly start to love each other as brothers and sisters. Now, here's why that's important. Because always, But specifically in the last two weeks, our brothers and sisters of color are telling us that they don't feel very much like brothers or sisters. They're telling us, and I'm not talking about random people that we see on the news or on the internet. I'm talking about our brothers and sisters here at Bayou City Fellowship. They're they're telling us that even though we consider them on the inside, that sometimes and maybe often they feel like they are on the outside. I know it could be so easy to dismiss that and say, well, that's not true, or I don't see that. But often, to most of us, injustice only looks unjust in hindsight. Often, to most of us, injustice only looks unjust in hindsight. Where was the church? The church of the living God. Church who bears the name of Jesus of Nazareth, eternal, saving Son of God. Where was the church during slavery? Where was the church 
during Jim Crow? Where was the church during segregation? Where was the church when women were fighting for the right to vote? Now, we would never advocate for returning to those days. We recognize them as wrong, evil. But if those churches fell into the trap of partiality, why would we not recognize that we too, in our generation, could fall into the trap? And why would we ignore the pleas of our brothers and sisters? Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, hospitality is the Greek word philoxenia. It means love for stranger. So the scripture is expanding what we read in verse 1, love one another as brothers and sisters, to now aim that love, that brotherly love, at total strangers. The way we treat one another inside the church is the way that we should treat people that we don't know. God, since Genesis 12, at least has had a heart for the stranger. He sends out Abram into an unknown land, not giving Abram a map. Abram and his family lived in tents, sojourning from place to place, always in someone else's claimed land. The same was true for his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and Jacob's sons. Israel later on as a, a people would wander from place to place through the wilderness lands and God provided for them, cared for them, and protected them from people who wished them harm. This is why it's so important to read the Bible for yourself, to study the Bible, to stop and think. So when you get to a word in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, like stranger, you understand the rich history biblically of how God has cared for the stranger. You know, evangelical Christianity has essentially become a demographic in surveys that I see on news, CNN, and Fox, and other places. This is what the evangelical Christians say. Now, what's interesting is I, I think, just my opinion, I guess, that that demographic is filled with a bunch of people who don't actually go to church and a bunch of people who don't actually read the Bible. And, and so among our circles, there are a lot of half-truths or twisted scriptures. So when this word stranger is mentioned here, it's in a context, a biblical context of God always having a heart for the stranger, because his own people were strangers. And this is so good from God. He doesn't say, help the stranger. Because it's possible to help a stranger and still be afraid of that stranger, which most of us are. It's in our human nature. At the end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus, Israel is living as strangers in the land of Exodus, but in the land of Egypt, but everybody is getting along. But eventually Israel's numbers begin to grow. And it says at the beginning of Exodus that the Egyptians began to fear the Israelites. That as they grew in number, they might overpower the Egyptians and take from them. And so what did they do? They enslaved the Israelites. It is possible to lend help to a stranger and still harbor fear for that person in your heart. This morning, this morning, this very morning, in the Houston Chronicle, there was a story of an African-American man who worked for a pool company. They repaired pools, they cleaned pools, and he pulled up to a house here in Houston. His work truck, very nice work truck, uh, plastered with the pool company's logo, phone number, website. In pouring rain, he takes all of his pool uh, fixing, cleaning equipment, 
uh, one thing at a time from the back of his truck to the backyard where he's working on the pool. A neighbor across the street calls 911 saying a house is being robbed. Why would you do that? Except for fear of the stranger. It's possible for us to do a lot of good for strangers and still have in our heart fear for the very person that we're helping. Because simply helping requires no change from me on the inside. But the scripture here doesn't say help the stranger. It says, it says show hospitality for the stranger, meaning show the stranger brotherly love. Open yourself, open your home, welcome them in, which does require deep change. And notice the motive. The motive is not what's good for society. The motive is not for progress. The motive is for God. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The motive is God. You might be receiving one of his messengers and therefore receiving him. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 when he says, if you help the thirsty stranger, hungry, naked, and those in prison, you are actually helping him. He's taking that very, very personally. So why should we root out any partiality, any favoritism, any racism out of our own personal hearts and out of our church? Because what if in rejecting someone made by Christ, we were actually rejecting Christ himself. Verse three, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. It seems from earlier references in Hebrews that these Christians have been suffering and some of them have been thrown into prison because of persecution. It was common for the emperors of Rome, whenever there would be an internal problem with the, the empire, they would blame a minority group. This first happened to the Jewish people of Rome, and, and they had to leave. Uh, and then it began to happen to Christians. And so it could be that this is what has happened to these Christians. Hebrews is written to, they've been thrown into prison. And the author of the letter, inspired by the Spirit of God, wants them to remember those prisoners. And the, and the key word is remember. Because the world moves on, we often drive through other people's suffering. We, we stop in, and then we move on. But there are some people who can't simply move on. These Christians, they can't move on from prison. You can't move on from being a minority in a majority culture. You are reminded of it every day. You can't move on from sexual assault. You can't move on from the death of a parent, death of a spouse, death of a child. You can't always move on from a cancer diagnosis. You know, the demonstrations in honor of George Floyd, they'll eventually go away as people return to their normal lives. Social media feeds will go back to birthdays and food and selfies. And that's okay. But our black Jesus' following brothers and sisters will still suffer just as they have told us they always have, unless, unless we take seriously the second part of verse 3. We remember them as if we were together with them in prison, as if we were suffering with them. 
I want God to sear three sentences into my heart. Sentence number one, I only know what it's like to be me. And you only know what it's like to be you. I grew up in Southwest Missouri. I've told you this before. I, I think I don't have any demographic proof of it. I think it is probably one of the least diverse places in America. And so I never really had to consider any of these things and, and, and until honestly recently. And a few years ago, Amanda was doing the reading and Amanda was doing the learning and, and, and she began to share some of these, these ideas about the differences between us here in the United States. And, and some of them were very hard for me to hear because all that I could hear her saying, it's not what she was saying, but all I could hear her saying is that somehow it was wrong to be me. And the thing that was frustrating is that I didn't choose to be me. I was just, I was born me. And, uh, and so it felt wrong to be, felt wrong to feel wrong to be, be me. But it's not wrong to be me. It's not wrong to be you. And, and you only know what it's like to be you, and I only know what it's like to be me. But we don't stop there. Second sentence, I want God to sear onto my heart. Let me imagine what it's like to be them. Even when you're fighting with your spouse, you only know what it's like to be you. Let me stop, and not that any of you would ever fight with your spouse, but hypothetically, let me stop and imagine what it's like to be her. Let me stop to imagine what it's like to be my kids. Let me stop to imagine what it's like to be them. And once I've done that, sentence number three, how can I join them in their suffering? The author of Hebrews wants these Christians to imagine what it's like to be sitting in prison and then suffer with them as if they were there. Go further than lending someone your sympathy. Lend them your pain. This is what Romans chapter 12, verse 15 is talking about when it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers. Our brothers and sisters have told us consistently they are hurting because of racism in America and racism within the church. But maybe for the first time, we are hearing it. And it can be so hard to know what to do, what to say. We all fear doing and saying the wrong thing, but in the word of God, there is a clear next step for all of us. Suffer with our brothers and sisters. Why do we do this? We do this because somebody got on the television and told us to. We do this because it seems like the tide of the internet is pulling us in that direction. Why, why do we do this? Why do we suffer with one another? We do it because we follow Jesus. Why do we love one another as brothers and sisters? Because Jesus has loved us as brothers and sisters. He has, by his own life, death, and resurrection, opened up his family table and pulled a seat up for us. Why do we remember the stranger? Because while we were far off from God, Jesus died for us. And when we were far off, Jesus brought us in, brought us near. And then more than that, made us his own co-heirs with him. 
And why do we suffer with those in the body of Christ who are suffering? Because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, through his incarnation, has experienced our pain. He has suffered as we have suffered, and more than that, in the cross, he has suffered in our place. So Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us. I remember the word in the Old Testament of the king who said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I pray for every one of us who are in that spot. We're looking to you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Would you help us to know what to do? We ask this in Jesus' saving, powerful name. Amen.